Hello and a warm welcome to this week's edition of Econoday Unplugged. It's Wednesday, the 2nd December 2020. Mark Penders, Statesard, Brian Jackson's in Sydney, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. And some positive news to begin. We heard yesterday that the UK became the first country to approve a COVID-19 vaccine following the completion of large-scale clinical trials, in this case the Pfizer-BioNTech version. Delivery is expected next week and hopefully the rest of the world will not be too far behind. So, having begun the podcast on an unusually optimistic note, let's see if Mark can keep it going in his part of the world. So, Mr Pender, what's happening on your side? Well, I would like to be optimistic, but the Federal Reserve's beige book has just come out, and readers of this know that the last thing this report is uh, is optimistic at all. It's always very, very subdued. It's just come out. It's uh, two o'clock Eastern time, and on Wednesday. And uh, what can we say? Their general uh, headline description is activity is uh, rising at a modest to moderate uh, pace. That would actually be an upgrade from slight to modest in their. Um, last report uh, in late October, um, yet of the 12 districts, five are reporting um, conditions below pre-pandemic levels. So that's a negative. This is a very, it's always, they always try to get it mixed, but I can tell you from the headline that it's going to have a little tilt to the positive. Um, And they talk about higher than expected or higher than average growth for manufacturing, uh, distribution and and logistics, home building and existing home sales. Now existing, that is a downplaying existing home sales. They're very, very strong. And without, although not without disruptions, and and that's I think the key, they're gonna be pointing to uh, COVID related disruptions into uh, economic activity. Uh, They once again are citing, uh, and and, uh, this is assembled through their um, contacts uh, throughout the country, the 12 different uh, banks and their business contacts. Uh, a lot of they have uh, board members, um, uh, separate boards that are uh, uh, important uh, industries represented um, in the different places. So they have uh, immediate contact with actual business. Now, this is anecdotal. There's no numbers. This is just descriptions. And they, uh, so from their banking contacts, they continue to, to describe trouble for commercial lending. And where it's going to be in le- uh, retail and, and leisure and hospitality. That's where a lot of this trouble, of course, COVID related is um, hitting. And now we have a little bit of a line increase in delinquencies in 2021 is w- is more widely anticipated. So that's your that's going to be a little bit of a negative there. Um, so they're talking about um, the risk of uh, foreclosures. And this is something very important that uh, Jerome Powell has been talking about this week and the need to keep emergency loan programs open that the Trump administration is, uh, has scheduled to close down. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, but now let's get to the employment. Now, Friday's employment report, um, what to expect for that? Uh, let, let me just tell you what our forecasters on the candidate panel are uh, looking for, 500,000 increase in non-farm payroll. That's really the, the, the central number to watch, and that would be significant slowing or tangible slowing from prior months, um, and uh, including 638 um, uh, in October. So, but this description is, uh, would be, uh, I guess, on the downside. Uh, our consensus range is 200,000 to 610,000 uh, rise for non-farm payrolls. Um, and the Beige Book is describing 
uh, employment has having uh, 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 gone up, rose since late October, but the pace was slow at best. Hmm. So that doesn't look very good. And slow in normal times would be a 50,000 gain, for instance. Um, but it says the employment recovery remains uh, incomplete. Incomplete. So that's a that's going to be a headline when you read your Econoday text. Uh, uh, they uh, uh, firms are. Uh, continuing to report the difficulties in attracting and retaining workers. Um, and uh, that, that's a, a bit of a, a mystery, uh, given that uh, the unemployment rate is uh, near 7%. But, um, you know, I, I, it's, I, I, they're not give, giving me too much uh, explanation on that. They're talking about COVID cases um, hurting schools. Uh, plant closings and fears of infections. They've cited that before that uh, the labor market is being constrained. Uh, 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 people looking for work are, are being constrained by uh, concerns over uh, COVID. Um, and, I, and so there, and it includes absenteeism and attrition. So there we go. That's our explanation is COVID. Uh, child care is once again cited as, a, as an issue uh, for people not going into the labor market. Um, again, a COVID related. Um, and prices. So now inflation is uh, really going to be the big thing to look for in a Federal Reserve statements now because of uh, the disconnect between the unemployment rate and um, and uh, interest rates or monetary policy uh, through the last uh, um, cycle that we talked about so much um, that uh, the uh, natural rate of unemployment may be very, very low. So uh, really, we're looking for inflation in indications. And here, uh, the prices in most districts are modest uh, to moderate. Now, let's look at the last report. And their description was mo more on the modest side. So there is a little bit of an uptick in inflation, I guess. Boy, that's real slight. That's what I'm talking about. It's really kind of these nuances and splitting hairs. Um, but they do say that selling prices of final goods rose at a slight to modest pace. And uh, so that's kind of a, a less downbeat uh, a version on a vision on prices. What this and this is uh, done two weeks before your beige book is released uh, on the Wednesday, two weeks before the next FOMC announcement. And so and that will be coming up in two weeks. And this isn't going to change any expectations for that. That's going to be a, a non-action um, FOMC. Uh, the, uh, the Federal Reserve, unlike I'm, I'm going to, I have to run and report this. I'm going to miss your description of what the Bank of England might do with the Jeremy with the negative rates, but the Fed is definitely not going to go there. And uh, can I ask you one very quick one? Say, yes. I, know, I, know, I know you got a one, one very quick one on the um, FOMC. Um, uh -huh. A lot of talk uh, last week, um, you know, following on from what you're talking about the Treasury pulling the the funding for some of the Fed's emergency lending programs. Yes. Will that have any implications for what the Fed might do? Perhaps not in December but perhaps early in early next year I think what I think there's this in-between period uh, when uh, Janet Yellen uh, will uh, take the helm of the Treasury and then uh, return the support for these programs and so you're getting these kind of um, vague gray areas which is very hard for us to describe in our content by the way but I think that that's what's going on and uh, when um, you know, uh, the, the dust clears and the new administration is put in, uh, I think you will see a, um, you know, a, a return to emphasizing that. Yet, you know, um, uh, demand for these actual loans, the companies have actually taken them is very small. 
but the Fed argues that well, just their mere existence, you know, helps stabilize uh, the market, helps give mm-hmm. confidence, and supports you know credit flows to businesses and households. So I, but that is a, you know I think a marginal third area of policy. I think what really is going to go on next year is going to be QE and what they do with that and how and if and you know if we these vaccines go through. Um, then we will begin talking about withdrawing uh, stimulus, and then we would be talking about um, raising uh, the federal funds target, which is just sitting just about at zero right now. So I think that that's probably where the, the bias will probably be. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. Okay, for that. I thanks, shall let guys. you get on with your scribbling. Okay, have fun, guys. Talk to you later. Okay, cheers, Mark. All right, cheers. Okay, Mr. Jackson, then. Um, well, perhaps if you could first, uh, for listeners, give a, a quick update of what's happening on the, the COVID side um, down under. And then, if possible, I'd like to have a chat with you about perhaps what's going on between Australia and China. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, things are moving in the right direction uh, in, in Australia uh, in terms of COVID. Um, you know, as, as people know, the the area where the, the biggest problem has been has, has been down in Melbourne and in Victoria over the last few months, but um, that's improved quite significantly uh, in recent weeks. Uh, cases have been at zero for, for um, you know a good period of time now, and you know right across the country now, you know it's definitely um, uh, tracking in the right direction. So public health restrictions are being eased, uh, border borders are reopening across the country. Um, and, you know, hopefully that will be translated into, you know, improved conditions um, for households and businesses right across the country. So, yeah, things are uh, moving in the right direction. And, and obviously with um, hopes of a vaccine coming in the new year, um, that's looking good. Elsewhere in the Asia-Pacific region, there are still a few, um, you know, concerns, uh, you know, in Japan, um, still a few, um, uh, you know, cases in Tokyo in particular. Uh, when we're talking about um, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore, they've been uh, negotiating um, a, a travel bu- uh, bubble to start uh, as soon as possible, but that's been delayed a little bit. Um, probably won't happen now until the new year. So in, in general, um, you know, though, uh, you know, things are definitely a lot better in the Asia Pacific area. Actually, it's quite some. I'll probably just get on to um, the Australia. On Japan, it seems from what I noticed from the figures, we had what five consecutive gains in industrial production now as of October. The first yeah. gain in uh, was it retail sales in eight nine months, whatever it was. So, uh, it's a, it looks as if you know, despite perhaps some COVID issues, the Japanese economy is starting to improve a bit now. Yeah, I mean the retail sales number is. Uh, uh, there's a bit of caution there. It was basically a year-on-year change. Um, uh, and, and the base effect was was impacted by consumption tax 12 months ago. So oh, of course. That, yeah. that was a bit of a spike uh, caused by that. But, you know, you are right. In general, uh, things are improving uh, in, even in Japan. I mean, bear in mind, uh, the Japanese uh, manufacturing sector was already uh, in pretty weak position going into the pandemic. So they're um, sort of clawing their way back from an already weak starting spot. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, I think um, right across uh, the region, but also in Japan, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, significant uh, recovery uh, over the last few months. That said, uh, you know, external demand has sort of been weighing a little bit on on that, given you know the renewed um, lockdowns that we saw in Europe over the last few months. Okay, fair enough. Thanks for that. Um, alrighty then. 
seems to be increasing media coverage of what looks to be sort of growing political tensions between Australia and China. And obviously it's been around for some while now, but it yeah. does seem to become a little bit more heated. Um, well, A, what's going on? And B, I suppose, given the importance of China as an export market to Australia, um, how important is it for the Australian economy? And indeed, for that matter, have financial markets actually started to take any notice of it yet? Yeah, I mean, this, as I say, this has been simmering for a while. Um, you know, if you go back to 2018, um, the Australian government uh, banned uh, Huawei from uh, you know, participating in the 5G network. That was not um, well received. Uh, the Australian government has also you know, been uh, making comments about Hong Kong situation. And then uh, early in this year about uh, you know, the need for an inquiry into what happened with COVID-19. So, you know, all, all these sort of um, issues have been bubbling along for, for a while now, but it does seem to have uh, escalated in the last uh, you know, few months. We've had uh, Chinese authorities, uh, you know, put on various trade restrictions on Australian exports. So far, nothing uh, too big, but just enough to, you know, send a, a pretty clear message that they're not happy. And, uh, yeah, it's... it's um, uh, definitely a concern for uh, you know Australian officials, and then just in the last uh, couple of weeks, um, it, it's sort of taken a you know even a, a more you know serious turn, I guess. Um, here in Australia, we have uh, some uh, soldiers that have been accused of war crimes in Afghanistan over the last you know 10, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, investigations are proceeding into that, and but um, you know the Chinese Foreign Ministry has. Um, you know, commented on on that in in a rather provocative way, and that has not been well received by the Australian government as they try and you know uh, investigate these accusations. So yeah, there's you know uh, a real sort of um, you know cool cooling of of relations between the two governments. Um, so far, uh, it hasn't really had a, a big impact on on the trade between the two countries, but. Um, you know, it will be interesting to see how that goes. As, as you said, Australia is, um, you know, China is Australia's biggest export market by far. And we are, uh, you know, Australia is a very important supplier for particularly iron ore, but other important, um, you know, uh, minerals and, and uh, commodities for, for China. Going forward, you know, I, I think that there will be, uh, you know, I, you know I, I'm, I'm confident cooler heads will prevail and, um, you know, won't see a, a really serious escalation of these tensions, but it's just, I think, a, an inevitable tension that there is in the Australia-China relationship. You know, obviously, Australia has very strong political and military ties with with the United States, but very strong commercial ties with China. And negotiating that balance has always been a, a challenge for, for for Australia. Okay, fair enough. Um... Partly sticking with Aussie, but more generally, I mean, we're in a sort of a period of, I guess, relative dollar weakness at the moment. So counterpart to which is obviously currency appreciation elsewhere. Now, certain, I think you've mentioned on a podcast before that Aussie strength hasn't necessarily gone down too well with the RBA. Um, and I guess so. it won't be too happy with current levels. But today there's also been some talk of the Reserve Bank of India intervening to slow rupee appreciation. So I wonder if from your sort of where you sit, if you think it, we're getting to the stage now whereby sort of a combination of risk on trades in general and US dollar weakness are starting or could cause local central banks some real policy headaches, or are we not at that point yet? 
I think there's still a little bit of way to go before it would have a, a direct impact on policy uh, across the region. But yeah, it's definitely a, a factor that that uh, not not only you know Australia and India, but also Japan, or, or, you know, obviously also mm-hmm. um, is very mindful of of the exchange rate situation. So um, yeah, it, it's and as I said earlier, uh, you know, the fact that um, you know renewed uh, lockdown in Europe and and to a certain extent in the US has has weighed on the external demand. For much of uh, Astra- you know, um, Asia Pacific region, that that's another factor that's going to cause them to be concerned about you know currency strength. But you know this is something that uh, uh, you know Asia Pacific policymakers are, are used to dealing with and and sort of factoring into their into their decisions. And you know what has actually been pleasing, I think, over the last few months is you know even though external demand has been a little bit soft, you you are seeing um, sort of some domestic. Uh, you know, demand picking up the slack. And so that hopefully takes a little bit of the pressure off as well. All right. Good to hear. Okay. Um, anything else from your side? No, I mean, just, uh, you know, we're, we're in the middle of uh, the the monthly sort of PMI cycle at, at mm-hmm. the start of the month. So we're getting a few more today and, and later on in the week. Uh, and, you know, it's just encouraging that uh, it's, it's, it's generally showing, you know, this continued recovery in activity. So, you know, very strong uh, pattern of, you know, extreme weakness in June, uh, in the June quarter, uh, strong rebound in the September quarter. But now we're seeing, as we move into the December quarter numbers, that that seems to be consolidating. So, you know, if we do have, um, you know, a, a real global pickup um, in, in uh, economic conditions next year with, with this vaccine, then, you know, it's looking reasonably uh, optimistic for, for 2021 for the Asia-Pacific area. Excellent. Let us hope so. OK, thanks for that. Um, well, I guess sort of compare and contrast really when it comes to my side of the world, uh, the COVID numbers out of Europe, I guess it looks now as if at least they peaked and they are starting to decline in most countries, but nonetheless, they're coming from very high levels. So we're still talking about lockdowns in a number of the big countries. France has started to lift its lockdown as of last weekend, and it's hoping to complete the process uh, by the middle of December, but already it's indicated that some hospitality areas will be closed over Christmas. Um, Italy still has very strong restrictions. And in Germany, although it's only a soft lockdown over there at the moment, um, last week they announced that that would be extended until at least December the 19th with the possibility of it running all the way through to January of next year. So it's still the case that the economic data from what we've seen, which as um, Brahm was talking about PMI as well, in terms of Europe, it's really the only sort of indications we've got, particularly of November at the moment. But PMIs out of Europe were disappointing, um, really suggesting that we're going to see a certain contraction anyway in service sector activity. Manufacturing is holding up rather better as it did during the first wave of lockdowns. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if we saw you know, a fairly negative uh, GDP reading as far as the month of November is concerned and the, the possibility of not much better when we see December as well. So fourth quarter Eurozone GDP is going to be weak. It's just a question of how weak it's going to be. And against that kind of background, of course, it's just fueled the fire of speculation that the ECB will be coming out and uh, cutting at least I should say, uh, easing policy next week. Talk more about that uh, the next podcast next week. But suffice it to say, as things currently stand, if we don't see a significant new package of measures coming out of the ECB um, on next Thursday, then investors are going to be extremely disappointed. 
prospects of easing really continue to be buoyed as well by this lack of any progress on trying to sort out uh, the European Union budget. At the moment, um, as we speak, Hungary and Poland are still refusing to sign off on it. And of course, given how uh, EU politics uh, works, until all the various EU members have agreed to the programme, then it's not going to come to fruition. So at the moment, the EU is facing starting 2021 without a proper budget, which can have major implications for uh, spending and hence you know, for the way the economy is going to fare as well. So it's not looking too good there at the moment. Um, they're still hoping that this uh, impasse can be resolved ahead of the EU leaders meeting. So you have a last summit before the end of the year. That's due on December the 10th and the 11th. But if nothing comes out of that, then really is it shaping up to be a right royal mess as far as Europe's concerned? Well, just just with um, yeah. you know, this impasse at the EU level, though, is there scope for uh, you know, particular countries to do more on fiscal policy outside of that process? I think there is. And I mean, to be honest, that's a very good point, because what we've seen so far, although I guess at the moment all the talk is about this fiscal rescue program, the, the 750 billion euro program the EU Commission is trying to put through, and that's tied to the, the overall EU budget itself. Most of the fiscal stimulus we've had coming out of Europe so far has been very much driven by national governments. Um, they were allowed to increase their public sector deficit to GDP ratios above the 3% limit which has been part of the, the so-called growth and stability pact uh, which puts the fiscal conditions or rules across the Europe, European Union as a whole. That's been wavered really since COVID and governments have taken the opportunity to come out and spend a lot reduce taxes as well. So countries like well, Spain, Germany in particular and France are going to see their budget deficits really go through the roof as far as this year is concerned. So I mean the answer to that is yes in terms of there is certainly I think still scope for individual national governments to do their own thing. But just in terms of having a budget for the European Union to try and keep that side of it working, you know, it's really looking pretty messy at the moment. Um, what else can we say? I suppose that next week with this EU leaders meeting, the other focal point there is going to be, surprise, surprise, the dreaded word Brexit. Um, as we record this podcast, despite having talked and we talked about this thing over so many previous weeks. There's still no agreement between the UK and the European Union as to what any trade relationship is going to look like once we get beyond the current post-Brexit transition period, which ends at the end of this month. Um, now, from what appears to be coming out through various media, le media leaks and so on, it still seems that there's a reasonable degree of optimism that something will be emerging over the course of the next week or possibly even the next few days. But, you know, as we said before, you know, don't hold your breath on it because we've been so close and it's fallen apart part in the past that uh, it could happen again. Um, so anyway, that is very much still in the offing at the moment. Um, so we've got Brexit uncertainty. We've got the issues surrounding the EU budget, all of which really does leave the, the ball in the poor old ECB's court in terms of who's going to try and get the eurozone economy going again. Because I mentioned the, um, the, the fourth quarter numbers are going to look bad. The first quarter may look a little bit better. But on the whole, it does look as if the eurozone economy really needs all the help it can get at the moment. And uh, and I guess one other thing I should mention, mentioned um, uh, when we chatting to Brian about the, you know, the, the, the strengths of some of the regional currencies now versus the dollar because of the dollar so weak. Well, the euro is also having a very good run against the US currency as well. It broke above uh, 120 um, on the dollar for the first time since 2018 earlier this week. 
and uh, people may remember that we're back in what September times, not before that. We had the ECB making noise to the fact that they weren't really too happy about the level of the euro at that time, and that was below where we are now. So wouldn't it be at all surprised to see some comments coming out of the ECB next week to the effect that uh, well, the exchange rate, although they don't have a target for it, it is very much uh, you know part and parcel of what goes into their monetary policy decisions. So expect them, if anything, to probably to come out and try to talk down. Uh, the level of a euro because they're not happy about current levels, particularly given the weakness we have, of course, of inflation right across the eurozone at the moment. The updated figures from this week for um, the flash figures for November show core inflation, which is the main measure, running at just 0.2%. And so that's still down at a record equaling low. Um, what else shall I mention from my side? Um, from the UK, the Chancellor over here announced a new stimulus package, uh, his latest spending review um, last week. Um, really, I suppose, some of the most interesting figures coming out of this are the downgrades of some of the economic expectations due to the, the second lockdown. So the economy is expected to shrink by some 11.5% this year now. Um, now, OK, they're forecasting a 5.5% recovery next year and uh, up 6.5% percent in 2022 but it means that uh, GDP in the UK is not expected to return to its pre-crisis level until we get to the end of 2020 end of 2022 so you know the outlook really for uh, you know, UK growth unemployment everything else at the moment is looking uh, not too good at all um, also, I should mention part and parcel of the uh, the winter, the spending review, we get some new forecasts coming out to the Office for Budget and Responsibility. They're responsible for putting forward the GDP growth numbers, inflation forecast around which the budget will be built. But rather than spending too much with that, one of the most interesting aspects of this was that they came out with their assumptions or projections, if you like, or for what a no deal Brexit would mean. And they're effectively taking the view that if we can't get some kind of trade deal agreed, then we're going to see a, a spike in inflation, as we'll see tariffs being introduced on goods coming into the UK, coming um, coming into the UK out of the EU, in the same way as the UK will be sticking tariffs on uh, goods going into the European Union as well. And they think, I mean, that consumer price inflation will be at least one and a half percentage points higher than it would have been had they had a deal. And uh, GDP growth in 2021, they think, would be cut by some two percentage points, with a long run view that of one and a half percentage points smaller UK economy than would have been the case with a deal. So really, I guess if you want to be sterling bearish there are a lot of numbers doing the rounds at the moment which really don't look too clever unless these politicians can get their act together and, and really come out with some kind of a deal has there been much evidence though of um, uk trade flows shifting um you know away from the eu you know towards other parts of, of the global economy I've got to be honest and say, not really. I mean, it's one of these issues because, you know, by far and away, our largest trading partner is, surprise, surprise, the European Union. I mean, it's only, what, 20 miles across the English Channel. So, you know, even more than perhaps for a lot of other countries, it's just the logical place to do business. Now, the UK government is busy touting. You know, it's looking around for all these trade deals. We'll have to see what Joe Biden says, but they're trying to get one through the states. They actually signed off on one with a Japan, what, week ago or a couple of weeks or weeks or so ago. But the Japanese share of UK exports is tiny, and we're talking about a couple of percentage points or so. So that's not going to make a great deal of difference. Um, but what we are seeing 
is that there's something of a minor panic starting to take place now on both sides of the English Channel regarding what might happen, A, certainly if there's no deal on the Brexit, and B, even if there is a deal, companies, businesses have been so uncertain for so long that they're simply not prepared for what's going to happen next year. And that's being reflected in the likes of the UK PMIs through you know, a big increase in, uh, in input buying. Uh, stock numbers are going through the roof. And that's certainly help, helping to um, support the UK PMI headline numbers at the moment. Now, we're probably going to see some kind of unwinding of that coming into the, into the first quarter of next year. So although, I mean, the Bank of England is still looking for a contraction in UK GDP in the current quarter due to the COVID effects and then hopefully some kind of rebound in the first quarter where it may be that you know due to this um, the Brexit distortions that the first quarter doesn't look very good either. So it's Brexit and everything else is making a right mess at the moment of trade flows for the UK and indeed the European Union. And um, whatever happens in terms of this trade deal is going to be very messy, I should think, for most of next year. Okay, um, well, I guess that's probably my lot finished. So if you're if you're done for the day. Well, uh, you know, yep. with uh, Mark having left early, I guess we could have a long discussion about cricket. But uh, well, know, it, uh, well, of course, it is mentioning now that, you know, with uh, with England having thrashed South Africans, they are now top of the T20 league looking ahead, of course, to the world T20 finals next year. That can only be good news. And meanwhile, Australia has just beaten India in a, in a cricket series as well. So um, I did notice Mr. Smith is suddenly Mr. Smith's doing very well again, which is very bad news if you're English. That's right, but uh, very uh, unintelligible if you're American, probably. So we won't we, go too far. We 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 would hope so, indeed. Okay, thanks, Brian. Um, right, well, let's wrap it up there then for today. But we'll be back again next week and in the interim. You can always keep up to date with uh, the key market moving data and events in Econoday's global economic calendar. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.